Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. In his late 50s, Antonio Banderas took on one of his most challenging roles. His friend and frequent collaborator, director Pedro Almodovar, had a new script, Pain and Glory. It's about a guy named Salvador Mayo, Banderas' character. He's a director. He made a handful of well-regarded sex comedies in the 80s. He has a nice apartment in Madrid, and he's stuck. He isn't really making movies anymore. He hardly has the drive to leave the house. He's beset by maladies, headaches, back pain, asthma. And all of those things are things that the character share with Almodovar. Pain and Glory is Almodovar's most personal confessional film. And in casting Banderas, someone who's known him for decades, he made the film all the more personal. Banderas' character wears Almodovar's clothes, has the same spiky hairstyle, lives in a replica of his Madrid apartment. And Banderas' performance is beautiful. It isn't an impression. He doesn't channel Almodovar. Instead, he personifies the director's pain, his need to create, nonetheless, even in his winter years. It's a beautiful film. If you have a chance to see Pain and Glory, I really recommend it. For now, though, let's get into my interview with Antonio Banderas. Antonio Banderas, welcome to Bullseye. It's so Thank great you. to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Uh, and I also want to let you know, for our listeners at home as well, that you smell very nice. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you smell great, uh, right. Antonio. That's good. <laughs> um, a few years ago, I had Almodovar mm. in here. And he actually, he doesn't like to do interviews in English. He's embarrassed of his English, but his English is very good. And he and I talked about migraine. He suffers from migraine, and, and I do too. And I felt like when I talked to him about it, he was very touched to talk about it. it was, it's a hard thing to talk about, but he was very touched mm. to talk about it. And I was very surprised, but in a way not surprised, that that kind of pain is such a big part of pain and glory. Yeah. You've known him for, you know, 40 years or something. Mm. Did you know about that part of his life? Yes. Um, um, you know, it was not uh, that important when, when we met uh, four decades ago, maybe because we were younger. Um, I mean, he, at the time, probably he didn't suffer these uh, migraine attacks so, um, you know, strongly. But uh, then when I came to to America, actually, in the beginning of the 90s. I remember, it, because we never lost contact, but sometimes I, I call some of my friends, common friends, you know, with Almodovar, and I and I ask them about uh, about Pedro. Did you see Pedro? He said, no, no, Pedro is not 
going out lately. Apparently, he got these migraines and he stays home. Also, he got problems in his back. He suffers from the photophobia. You know, the, the light produced these headaches on him too. So, uh, no, no, he's getting very isolated. And, and, and then, I, I, you know, every time that I went to Spain, and especially if I went to Madrid, I used to call him and just go for dinner with him and stuff like that. And, um, and then I started just um, realizing that he was very secluded because I, I called him and I said, ah, I can't do it. Uh, you know, I don't feel good. See, he was always, you know, giving what I thought at the time they were excuses until I, uh, you know, realized that they were not excuses, that he was really suffering, you know. It's interesting that you said that he actually was very interested and uh, talking to you about that. Because I, I think actually you can connect with people through pain too. And especially if it's a common pain. Uh, it happens to me too. You know, I, I don't suffer that those types of pain. Uh, though I got problems in my back in the past. But, uh, but I suffered a heart attack now uh, two and a half years ago. And every time that I find somebody who had the same cardiac problem, I... <laughs> feel strangely and in a bizarre way uh, connected to that person. Yeah. <laughs> so I understand, you know, that you establish some kind of connection, you know, with your pain. Actually. I mean, one of the unusual things about chronic pain, particularly, is that, you know, it's invisible. Yeah. And you learn the lesson very quickly that you're not going and you kind of learn it the hard way that you're not that you don't get that far talking about it because other people can't see it whether some people might not believe in it or not understand the stakes or or whatever you learn to just kind of lock it up of course and that's when uh, actually the the pain that is just physical can become something bigger than that and and it goes to the psyche and you know, it, it goes to another places. Uh, as I, I was commenting before, and I saw that in Pedro, isolation basically, you know, because, you know, you have a friend or an enemy better, you know, that is invisible, that nobody sees. Everybody's happy. It's very difficult to connect with that kind of pain, but you see the effect that you produce in other people, so you start getting isolated, you start going away, and that produces another type of pain. So there is a moment in the movie, In Pain and Glory, in which he explained very graphically, almost like in a cartoon, you know, all the different type of pains. And when there is that frontier, that border that you cross between the physical pain and the psychological pain, and the psychological pain, that's another animal, another, uh, you know, thing that you have to deal with, completely different and much more permanent, because that can even last longer. You can lose your physical pain, but that thing stays with you for a longer time. What kind of relationship did you have with Almodovar when the two of you were young? Very, uh, Almodovar is a very private person. And I always had a very strong relationship with him as friends, but limited. I never tried to trespass those size of his privacy. I mean, it's funny to think of him as a very private person. I, not that I disbelieve you. It's yeah. just that, 
you know, like in the in the 80s in Spain when he first started making films and right before he first started making films, you know, like he was playing and I watched clips of him playing in his band, oh, yeah. which was like the some of the wildest performance I've like B-52s, you know, hold oh, my yeah. purse. Like it was way past that. Oh, yeah. And, you know, obviously his films are so grandly emotional and exciting and fun and kinetic and, you know, mm-hmm. all of those things. And you think, it, you think this must be somebody who just like whirlwinds into your life and, you know, and blasts it with color or something. Mm. It's, you, what you're telling me is not what you, would, what you might assume from his work. Not in my case. I, I got to the Almodovar universe as an actor. He saw me for the first time uh, performing at the National Theater. He was doing classic theater at the time. And he just uh, came to me to offer me a character in his second movie, Labyrinth of Passions. How old were you? I was, at that time, 19 years old. And uh, so, you know, we start working always like that. Then he got a group of crazy people breaking all the rules of this Spain of the time. You have to think that when I met Pedro it was in 1980. That was five years after Franco died. So Spain was coming out of a dictatorship with a very specific rules, parameters, you know, morality, a number of things that were accompany all this regime. And um, that that those things they don't dissolve just like that by you know a decree that says you know now we are a democracy and everybody just forget. 40 years of dictatorship and become something different. No, it doesn't happen like that. But people like Pedro Almodovar, some musicians, you know, groups, uh, people in the, in the world of photography, um, writers, they were pushing the idea of a new Spain, you know, with more colorful. So there were a bunch of people surrounding Almodovar. They were like the Rolling Stones. It was like these guys are breaking the rules. Not all of them were actors. Some of them were writers, painters, but they act in Almodovar movies almost like a hobby. It was kind of fun. It was kind of uh, crazy and... Uh, you know, off the box completely. And I was almost the only actor, actor, you know, <laughs> that actually was participating in that movement. But I wasn't part of that movement. So Almodovar always called me in that context. It was not until 1985, 1986, I think by the time that we did Law of Desire, that, you know, uh, the relationship, I totally understood the dimension of the man that I had in front of me because he was able actually to bend completely the Spanish morality of the time. Uh, Law of Desire is a movie that actually put homosexuality on the screen very graphically with no complexes at all, you know, uh, very raw, but at the same time, very honestly, you know, it was not a porn movie or anything like that. It was a real movie with a very interesting narrative that was, you know, awarded all around Europe in film festivals and stuff like that. But it was very interesting how that theme banned Spanish morality and at the same time my own in a way because you start reflecting about the things that you have seen for many years for example yes my character is homosexual and he kisses another man and you know these uh, scenes that were very explicit in, in that context but in 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 the same movie I killed somebody and nobody put attention to that that was accepted that has been always accepted the fact that a person can kill another person in a movie you know is you know even in movies for kids is fine you know if you don't see blood in movies for kids 
it's totally fine. But one person kissing another person of the same sex, oh my God, it seems like the world is going to just uh, explode and, you know, in, in pieces. So things like that, Almodovar, things that are that simple, you know, were very important at the Spain of the time. Now, was I part of that movement? No, because I came out of the Almodovar world and I did theater and I did other things. I belonged to the group, but to to a certain limits. I was not full part of that kind of movement. You grew up in Andalusia. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like when you were a kid? Well, when I was a kid, until I was 15 years old, I w we were living under a dictatorship. That is, uh, it was not... It was not very violent. People may think that there was a lot of violence in that. What I remember is a state of, how can I describe it, almost anesthesia. Everything was fine. Too fine. <laughs> Eerie fine, you know? And uh, now, with time, if I think about those days, you know, I can see the cracks of the regime at the time, how it was falling apart. But when Franco died, he, uh, you know, I, I remember growing up from being a kid into being a man at the same time that my country was going from a dictatorship to a democracy. So, you know, those years and the place where I was born, Malaga, which is in the south of Spain, the south of Andalusia, it was a little bit more um, liberal, uh, more freer, if you will, because the tourists coming from the north of Europe, Swedish, Finland, Norwegian, British, uh, they came with another things in their minds. <laughs> I was going to uh, say, you get those wild Swedes in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was really fun, actually. <laughs> but they came with different stories and different right. things. And I remember discotheques in, in Torremolinos, in, uh, in, in the, the people I remember, Tiffany's, places that were, you know, you can find those places only probably in London at the time, in, in Europe, uh, but they were in Torremolinos in Franco's times, which is v a, an incredible anachronism, in, if you will. You know, very weird. Uh, I, remember, <laughs> I remember going in the car with my father and my mother. We used to have a little apartment in Fuengirola, which is, uh, you know, like a 30 kilometers from Malaga. You have to pass through Torremolinos, and Torremolinos was a heaven for hippies at the time, you know. And I remember in 1970, 70, 6971 something like that. you know my mother used to we, we, in the car we were crossing torremolinos and when she saw hippies she ordered my brother and I to close our eyes <laughs> close your eyes close your eyes there are hippies there <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, you know, I, I am just crazy to do a movie in which I can just put that in. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's true. Um, I was, you know, my family was a very good family. I, I never, you know, had problems in my childhood. Uh, I am a loving father and mother and a great brother that is still, as today, my best friend. Um, and so there is no traumas or anything related to my early years in the world. And then, uh, you know, as I said to you, politically, I understood, you know, that uh, the Franco regime had to disappear of our lives and start growing in a completely different direction. And that's exactly what uh, the, the country did, yeah. When did you leave town? I left town on the 3rd of August, 1979. <laughs> <laughs> at 6 o'clock 
in the afternoon. I just want to say I was not setting you up for that. I didn't know that you had the exact same time in there. I have the exact time and I have the exact image and the exact sounds and everything. My mother my mother uh, took my pants and she uh, put secrets, secret pockets inside just in case that I was robbed, you know, that they couldn't find the money. The money that I left uh, my hometown with was uh, not even $100. That was all I had to my adventure. And they were in those secret pockets inside my pants. But I remember that, that afternoon, the train was called Costa del Sol. And I went there with my $100, a little suitcase, and some of my friends, actors, amateur actors that I worked with at the time, came to say goodbye. They brought me cigarettes and things like that you know, at the time. And I remember exactly the moment that the train started going because it was a movement without sound. It was like a clunk. And suddenly I saw my friends going away, away. And I knew at that moment that if I go back to Malaga, sometime, someday, I will be somebody else. I would be a new me. It was a very clear thought that came to my mind. This is it. This is a moment in which I separate from what I was until this particular time, and I'm going to create something new. We'll have even more with Antonio Banderas in a minute. After a quick break, did you know that every single one of his lines in The Mambo Kings he learned phonetically? We'll talk more about that. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. In 1980, with a few thousand dollars and used dairy equipment, Ken Grossman founded Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Ken's award-winning ales propelled him from home brewer to craft brewer. Today, Ken and his family still own 100% of the company, one of the most successful independent craft breweries in America. More at sierranevada.com. News breaks and big stories change every day. That's why we're giving you NPR's 10-minute morning news podcast on Saturdays, too. I'm Scott Simon. And I'm Lulu Garcia-Navarro. Up first, start your day with us weekdays at 6 Eastern and Saturdays at 8, a bit later to suit your weekend from NPR News. Hello there, ghouls and gals. It is I, April Wolf. I'm here to take you through the twisty, scary, heart-pounding world of genre cinema on the exhilarating program known as Switchblade Sisters. The concept is simple. I invite a female filmmaker on each week, and we discuss their favorite genre film. Listen in closely to hear past guests like the Babadook director, Jennifer Kent, Winter's Bone director, Deborah Granick, and so many others every Thursday on MaximumFun.org. Tune in if you dare. <laughs> it's actually a very thought-provoking show that deeply explores the craft and philosophy behind the filmmaking process while also examining film through the lens of the female gaze. So, like, you should listen. Switchblade Sisters. Hey, everybody. Uh, So here's something unusual. Uh, If you've listened to Bullseye for a while, you might have heard of a comic named Chris Garcia. In 2016, we ran one of his sets as part of our Best Comedy of the Year special. He's got a brand new podcast called Scattered. So if you know Chris's comedy at all, you know that he does a lot of material about his father. But his father died a couple of years ago. And Chris realized that there was a lot that he himself didn't know about the man who raised him. His dad had a lot of secrets about his last years in Cuba, 
about his life in America. And he took those secrets to the grave. So now Chris is trying to dig up the truth and find out what happened. You can check it out. It's called Scattered from WNYC Studios. Best of luck to Chris Garcia. Funny guy, good guy, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Antonio Banderas, stars in the new Pedro Almodovar film, Pain and Glory. It's in theaters now. I have a lot of friends who are comics. And one of the things that a comic, one of the skills that a comic has to develop is the ability to walk on stage, have an understanding of what the audience's impression of them is immediately, and address it so that they can do other things. You know, it's yeah. the the cliche joke of somebody walking on stage if somebody says, I know what you're thinking. Such and such had a baby with such and such. Well, here I am, right? <laughs> and it's it's not, the comics don't do that because it's the funniest joke in the world. They do it just because they understand that as soon as they step in front of people, people have a reaction to what they see. And I wonder at what point, like, you realized that part of the reaction that people had to looking at you yeah. was that you are, and I'm just going to stipulate this, super handsome. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, you're like some kind of movie star or something. Right. But I wonder, like, how you manage that in your life and when you realized like what effect it had on people for good and ill i'm sure one has always a tendency and they talk about probably everybody to actually mm, don't be completely objective about what you are uh you know sometimes i get surprised and i don't want to think too much about it you know why the people see in me I, I see that i produce some kind of effect but at the same time that was kind of a handicap at some point you say, oh, I am trapped in this thing. And this one of the things, actually, when I've been doing Q&As these days, when you are sometimes answering questions that the people make to you, some of them are very poignant and very interesting. You start discovering things that you have done that you didn't even know, you know. But one of the things that I had to do when I did Pain and Glory is to kill that guy, to kill Antonio Banderas. The Antonio Banderas that everybody has in his mind, you know, that is kind of athletic, we have seen him in Zorro, we have seen him in action movies. So he's a guy that, you know, performs, he moves good in front of the camera, whatever it is. You know, I had to get rid of him somehow. And you're not doing, I mean, like, the, it's interesting to me that while you are wearing Almodovar's hairstyle <laughs> and you're wearing his beautiful clothes, mm -hmm. it didn't feel to me like you killed Antonio Banderas by doing an impression of no. Pedro Almodovar. No, that would have been a huge mistake. No, an impression is not acting. It's some, something else. And it goes to, more to the comedy territory. And, uh, and it would have killed the movie. No, if we wanted to do something uh, complex and, 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 and deep, um, I had to, yeah, I can have the hair, I can have all these exterior things, but the character has to be created from the inside out and cannot be an imitation. Because if it's an imitation, especially in Spain, that everybody knows Pedro Almodovar and his maneurism, you know, ah, you know, I would have been just imitating somebody. No, I have to create the character from another point of view. And so he got his own life. Remember, the character is not called Pedro Almodovar, it's called Salvador Mayo. So I have to go with him. Then, of course, it's an alter ego of Pedro. And it has to do pretty much with the whole entire universe of the movie. Why? Because... 
it's true that Almodovar is not telling everything that is on the screen. Not everything happened for real. You know, some of the things happened, some of the things didn't happen. But that's the point. The point is to think, what am I? I, I am I the on, only the things that I have done and the things that I have said? Or uh, am I also the things that I have dreamt? Am I the things that I wanted to say and I never said? The things that I wanted to do and I never did? And Pedro Almodovar allowed himself in this movie to do and to say those things. So in reality, it's him. Of course it's him, even if those events didn't happen. In reality, it's more Almodovar than Pedro Almodovar. <laughs> you know, it's a, because it's just creating, you know, the things that he never said to his mother, which was actually very emotional when we were doing that, because, you know, they, you can have all type of information when you're doing a movie, especially if you're doing a character that actually existed. And um, it's very complicated when they the character that you are playing is actually the director of the movie and is the one who is saying action and cut and is giving you indications. But when the indications that he's giving you are not verbal, but emotional, you see the effect that those lines produce in him, then it's, oh, man, I know exactly what is happening to him, so I can act it. I know what is inside. Sometimes he was giving indications to us and he couldn't. He couldn't. He, it was so emotional to him that he had to go because he got tears in his eyes, you know. So I said to him at those times, I said, just say action, say action. I got it, I got it, I got it. I got it now, please. And, and he said action, and boom, and, and he came. So, you know, it's, uh, this movie was a different um, deal. But yes, no, no imitation. Though that was a rule. He allowed me, though. He came to me and he said to me, Antonio, if you want to use some of my mannerism, say no. No, Pedro, allow me just to go from another angle, really, because otherwise we are going to just do something that's going to be cheaper. And he, he agreed. You've had a long career as an American movie star, very fruitfully, but I also think that you and Almodovar as artists will be tied together for the rest of your lives and, yeah. and beyond. And it was a big deal for him to write and direct a movie that was this autobiographical, that was this much his story. That's not his normal modus operandi. Was it scary for you to accept that responsibility? Yeah. yeah for this, this friend of yours that you must, I mean, like I imagine... <laughs> I, I've met the man once and I, I like think all the time about how much I admire him. <laughs> and like, <Yeah>. <laughs> you've had this working relationship for 40 years. I imagine that you also admire his art as much as, as, much as I do and of find course. him to be as compelling a, a person as I did. Yeah. Let's just, uh, let me just tell you a story um, that explain why he's going to give you an answer. You know, we our relationship as friends has been constant during all these 40 years. But as professionals, we stopped working at the end of the 80s, and we didn't go back to work until 22 years after. And that was for a movie called The Skin I Live In. So he called me after 22 years. I arrived to, because I, he loves to rehearse, right, for a month before principal photography, which is very rare in directors, I mean, movie directors. Theater is normal, but not in, in movies. And so... 
I arrived to my first rehearsals just uh, throwing on the table and saying, Mira, the th look at the things that I have learned in America. Look at the way that I use my voice. I am so, you know, secure now in front of the camera. I am so this and so that and so this and And then after a week rehearsing, he said to me, you know, those things that you brought from America, they may be very useful for your American directors, but they are not useful, useful for me. <laughs> so, where are you? And the question was like, what? Yeah, where are you? I am here. Really? So I got into the movie, you know, confronting him in a little, a little bit. And of course, we are friends and it's always a creative, uh, you know, relationship. But there was tension on the set. We were just, you know, uh, trying to just occupy our spaces. Then the movie finished, he edited the movie, and I went to the Toronto Film Festival, and I saw the movie for the first time there with an audience, and I just couldn't believe that he was capable to just bring out of me, take out of me the character that I was seeing on the screen, that I didn't even know I had it inside. So it was like, oh my God, what happened? Well, what happened then is that you have to be humble. You have to be humble, you have to open your eyes and you have to open your ears and your heart and, you know, realize that you were making a mistake and you have to listen more, especially for those people that actually you have been growing with, you know. And I was thinking, ah, this is going to happen again or not? Is he going to call me again or not? So when I received this call, Nine years after, uh, a professional call, Antonio, I send you a script. It's filled with references of people that you know, of yourself, of myself. You know, you're going to find uh, that material is very, very uh, close to you, too. I would like for you to play this guy, Salvador Mayo. He didn't say anything else. Of course, I read the script, and I thought, oh, my God, <laughs> this is it. This is the opportunity. So I called him, and I said, all right, I'm going to just go there. As a, as a plain soldier, I don't have medals, I don't have anything. I had a heart attack, and I think I have learned from that too. And there is something that has changed in me. Because when you see death face to face, things change in you. And he said, yeah, I noticed that, and I would like for you to use it for this character. Whatever happened in you, I don't know how to describe it, but it is something different. And I said, okay, so let's start from the scratch. Eh? I don't want to use those tools that made me feel comfortable in front of the camera. Those tricks that, that I have learned during years that I know that are effective for an audience. I want to go from zero, man. Let's just try to get together in the mud and start creating the character from there. And he says, well, it sounds beautiful to me. And that's how we start working in this movie, from zero. It's very scary because <laughs> he doesn't, he, he sees everything. So in the moment that you're using tricks that he knows, no, Antonio, no, that's not the way to go. But a week after rehearsals, not even principal photography, we knew that we were rowing in the same direction. And it's so spectacular, you know, how beautiful things were that we finished the movie a week and a half before we were supposed to, which is unheard of <laughs> in, the in the movie world. You know, normally you go... Right, you're constantly yeah. begging the money people for an extra few days exactly. of shooting. Yeah, yeah. So it, it has been a very interesting uh, experience that actually I don't think I totally metabolized yet. I need all of this 
form that is surrounding us these days to go down and probably in the years to come I will realize what happened you know during all of those uh, days of uh, shooting and how we found the things that we found and how this movie is going to change our lives yeah I was thinking of Tom Cruise you know one of our greatest movie stars of course and like the the question is sometimes like why is Tom Cruise one of our greatest movie stars and he's a very good actor but I don't think he's our greatest movie star because he's the greatest actor but there's something about his like almost his like his way of moving that is compelling yeah right and i was thinking about these and also the way that he looks is compelling like on screen he's fascinating to look at right it, it, he, he is whether definitely. or not you think he's like the handsomest guy ever or not the handsomest guy ever it's sort of irrelevant you want to look at him right yeah and I was thinking of these gifts that you have that are similar in that you have a beautiful voice, you know, people want to look at you on a screen, and you have a, like a, a sort of, I think you, you alluded to it earlier, but like a, like a physical, almost athletic quality that makes it so that you can be Zorro, right? Like not everybody can be Zorro uh, and, and make it seem right. And those are... <laughs> Those are the things that you have to leave uh, leave aside to do this particular role yeah. for the most important professional collaborator you've had in your career, yeah. where you're playing the highest stakes role that he has ever had in any film in his yeah. career because it's him. And, you know, you have to let go of sounding beautiful. You have to allow yourself to, you know beat yourself up physically a little bit be old yeah be old decrepit <laughs> yeah lonely yeah <laughs> but it happens too I, I had kind of a training when I did for seven months uh, uh, Picasso because I, I don't look like Picasso neither and I got into that skin in, in a different way because I mean it, I know Picasso very well too because I was born in the same town that he was born in the Malaga, in Malaga in the south of Spain so the image of Picasso has been always you know inserted in my brain since I was a little kid but also physically I had completely a, a different uh, you know physicality uh, uh, I don't want to be redundant but uh, yeah and, and and so I have to take a leap yeah I mean it's like you can put it on a Picasso shirt that helps but it's not the, <laughs> that is not yeah. gonna do the whole thing yeah. no no you know there is a way that he talk there is a way that he walk there is a way that you know his presence uh, his aura everything you know about him so in a way uh, you know age in a way is giving me more opportunities than my uh, young years and I am very thankful to that um, to play characters that are way more interesting than the things that I used to do. And, you know, I am no, I don't regret any of the things that I have done. But they were done at that time because I was very right. close to them. Yeah. You know? Also, you have to think... Antonio, I'll just say, if I could be Zorro in a movie... I'd take it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd be into that. That'd be awesome. <laughs> All right, gotcha. <laughs> no, uh, you know, another thing that for me was difficult is when I came to America, I, you know, it's not that my English improved too much, you know, but... Uh, I couldn't speak the language at all when I right. came over here. You literally, when you say that, <coughs> yeah. 
my understanding, and tell me if I'm wrong, was that you literally couldn't speak English. When At you were- all. Nothing. Zero. Nothing. I learned my lines phonetically when I did the Mambo Kings. Mike and I wanted to compliment you on your performance. That was a wonderful song. Very nice. Beautiful Maria of my soul. I have written many different songs of the first, many different versions of these songs. Excuse me. Have you written any other songs? Yes, a few songs. Suitcase full. Suitcase. So, where are you fellas from in Cuba? Las Piñas. That's the sugar mill town there in Oriente, you know that. <laughs> so am I from Oriente too. <laughs> Santiago. Because <laughs> you put a couple of Cubanos together, we're all related, right? <laughs> 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 he was very weird. I had an, an interpreter just to give me the direction from the director and you know the director had to talk to the interpreter the interpreter with me and the interpreter all day long like that I couldn't understand anybody it was very weird and very bizarre experience is it a different experience to you to act in english than in spanish yeah in what way it's weird but your your body moves in a different way i work for example also in italian language that i I kind of speak Italian too. And my body moves in a different way. My hands go crazy when I work in Italian. Uh, but it's something interesting. Even, you know, in English obviously is not my mother language. But now it's different. But at the beginning, when I started working in English, words didn't have the history that the Spanish words had to me. And so it's, it was very interesting to see that I was more detached emotionally from those words. And it was, in a way, easier to express things. I mean, English is a very synthetic language. You express with very little words, you express a lot of things and and ideas, which is great. It's great for music, for example. Uh, But, uh, for example, it was very easy for me to say I love you in English, which it was not that easy to say te quiero or te amo in Spanish, because in Spanish I knew the... The weight of the words. It's, it's, you know, anybody would understand what I'm saying. When you learn bad words in in a in a different language, you just drop them. You don't you don't care. You don't know really because you don't have a history with the words. You are in a dinner and you say whatever word and produce an effect on people that is, you know, shocking to you because for you that word is just a word. You know, right. well, but the thing and the thing happened with everything. You know that you're saying. So there was a certain freedom, actually, that that I felt when I was working in English, uh, regardless of the accent. Yeah, a big part of this film is not just the pain of not just the physical, but the emotional pain of getting older. I think the pain that your character goes through is, you know. It, it's partly the depression that comes from chronic pain that, you know, I recognize. But also I think it is when you're younger, it can be easier to build up the steam to take that on and take solace in the creativity that your character ultimately, yeah. you know, takes solace in. Yeah, getting old. What is getting old, really? Because if you have your memory... And you have your intelligence with you. You know, it's not that bad, you know. Uh, the problem 
of the character and I think the problem for anybody who become old is when you have to stop doing what you love to do and uh, and that is the big drama of the character he wants to direct movies but movies for him are a very physical you know uh, thing to do and so he couldn't he, he can't so there is a moment in the movie in which he takes a decision he's going to take a surgery he goes for it he want to fix himself and there is something very simple in the movie but very beautiful the doctor comes to him he's just received uh, the anesthesia didn't do effect yet but he says to him so what are, what are you what are you doing now said well no he says to the doctor you know i am riding and he says that like a please don't kill me <laughs> i have to continue doing things so i am right so oh fantastic what are you doing a comedy a tragedy he says oh no it's not comedy it's not tragic tragedy is both it's just life boom and he just lose consciousness well there is the, the movie at the end is very hopeful and i could see actually my character pedro taking weight out of his shoulders as the movie was advancing why because there it was a process of relieving it was almost like a therapy for him uh, because this movie movie at the end man, even if it's a very specific story and the narrative is very specific it managed with international and uh, you know eternal concepts the movie talks about reconciliation about coming to terms with the past it talks about even forgiveness and how you do that with your family how you do that with actors in his case how you do that with uh, your lovers how you do that with cinema itself and with life itself and that is what i think hook people into the movie that is probably the secret and the mystery that makes this movie accessible by anybody one of the most moving scenes in the film is a scene where your character is in flashback a lot of the film is in kind of reveries and your character is an adult with his mom who's very old getting close to death and your character is obviously like experiencing a lot of pain about his mom and the way his mom relates to the world and to him yeah and there's a very sincere moment where your character apologizes to his mom for never being the kid that she wanted to have yeah which i might like my initial instinct in that scene is like well this has to be an angry sentiment this you know the <laughs> like i'm I'm used to that story being told on film, but I'm used to it being told from the perspective of uh, a kid who's establishing their autonomy, yeah. um, even if that kid's an adult, right? But actually what it felt to me like was a sincere apology because he loves his mother and not that he thinks he wants to have something else for his life or to have had. No, in fact, no, no, no. in that scene, he says, you know, I'm just a different person and I was doing my life. Yeah. It's very beautiful, and you know, it's a beautiful moment of reconciliation, as you described. That is one of those uh, moments uh, that I tried to explain before. The, the all the information that came to me was emotional. Pedro um, Almogovar loved to come to the set and uh, and read 
the scene with the actors and he plays every actor and remind him while he's reading you know little details here and there that we were just working on the rehearsals and don't forget that don't remember that you had to pick up things here anything so he read my mother I was giving the replica to him and when he was going to read my part he took the script and he couldn't he was going to read and and I saw that he couldn't read it. And suddenly I, I, I just stood up and I embraced him. And uh, Julieta Serrano, the actress who played my mom, who was a dear friend of us from a long time ago also. And I said to him that, you know, go just say action, man. I, I know. I know what is happening. I know that what you wrote is what you wanted to say that you never said. And uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hit it. And, and, and exactly what you said, there was no angriness. There was a real apology. That doesn't mean that he says at that time, I'm going to change, Mama, I'm going to be something different because I, I, he couldn't. You know, this is what I am. I had to accept myself as I am, as I feel. And I am sorry for that because I know probably that you wanted something different. And I am so sorry for that too. So it's very simple and very beautiful, you know, to that, that apology in which there is no angriness involved. Yeah. Well, Antonio, I'm so grateful to you for coming to be on Bullseye and for this absolutely beautiful film. Thank you. It was a very, uh, a very moving performance, an extraordinary performance. Thank you. Thank you so much. Antonio Banderas, Pain and Glory is his latest film. It is beautiful and touching. You can see it now in select theaters, I recommend that you do. It's really something else, and Banderas is amazing in it. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org, world headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Uh, If you're wondering, there's a woman who makes quesadillas at 7th and Alvarado, highly recommended by our staff. I gotta get over there. I had a quesadilla for lunch, but I had a quesadilla al pastor from uh, taco truck a few blocks away. Maybe I should have gone to the quesadilla lady. Show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. I'm going to be honest. I saw a picture of Kevin's quesadilla, my producer Kevin's quesadilla, he had yesterday. It looked good. Maybe some pickled red onions in there, looked like. Anyway, our producer, Kevin Ferguson, aforementioned. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows are Jordan Cowling and Melissa Duenas. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, who's also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team, the great band from England. Thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use it. And we have a huge archive of Bullseye interviews. We are coming up on 20 years of this show existing. One of my all-time favorites was with Pedro Almodovar a couple years back when his last film came out. Uh, Google that. Uh, Search for it with whatever your duck-duck-go it. Uh, I think you'll be happy you did. Pedro Almodovar on Bullseye, one of my favorites of all time. What an amazing man. We talked a lot about chronic pain, actually. We talked about migraine, from which both he and I suffer. He's an amazing guy, as well as an amazing filmmaker. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.